I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I. Live from Salt Lake City, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm your host, Sean McCraney, and tonight our prayer will be given by Brother Richard D. atoning sacrifice for us and for his teachings. We're grateful also to Sean and to this ministry for their efforts in spreading thy word and studying thy word and in helping those in need. We ask, Father, tonight that you will bless Sean, that he will be able to share those thoughts and that he has prepared for the day and that our hearts will be open and that we will all grow closer to thee and with a stronger commitment to follow our Savior. And these things we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. You know, here at uh, campus, everybody adds a different uh, spice and flavor to the recipe uh, I know few people who make me laugh more than the man who just gave that prayer. I mean, he makes me roar. So uh, thank you, everybody who's been praying. Uh, we didn't have anybody tonight. We were going to do something, and, and, and Richard walked in right at the last minute and was willing to do it. So we're always grateful for everybody who's willing to participate. All right, as a reminder, beginning Tuesday, January 5th, we'll be airing a new show right before Heart of the Matter, 7.30 Mountain Time, that's January 5th, 2016. It's called Breaking Bread with Warren Puckett. I love the flavor that Warren brings to the recipe, so to speak. Jesus is Lord, is his main thing, and, and he's Richard, I mean, not Richard, uh, Warren and I don't really see completely eye to eye on a lot of things. I mean, that's fine. And that he walked up to me and said, I want to tell you something. He, correct, he said, I'm going to tell you something. You're wrong on this the other day, and I just laughed, but... Uh, it's great to have a guy uh, like everybody who uh, loves the Lord around. So that's Breaking Bread beginning Tuesday, January 5th, 7.30 before Heart of the Matter. Also, I have something really exciting in my life this week. I am, have the honor of being interviewed on none other than Bishop Earl's show. And uh, we'll let you know when that will air. It's going to be probably sometime in January. 
uh, but we'll let you know. But you can go and see the hundred plus, I mean, those up there of interviews that he's done with people who've come out of uh, Mormonism and into a, a living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You can go to www.xmormonfiles.com xmormonfiles.com that's with Bishop Earl he's uh, created quite a uh, body of interviews and I'm really excited to be able to sit and talk with my brother on that uh, additionally we have created a new book for you to consider it's online it's free it's called it's not the end of the world we encourage you to download it and challenge some of your preconceived notions you might agree you might not but it's free and it's it's not the end of the world it's at www.hotm.tv and speaking of online, a dear friend, sister friend of mine, uh, who keeps her ear to the rails of the internet, told me that some naysayers of my person and my views have been passing around an idea that I am a, um, a, a promoter of sin. And uh, I, I understand how this could be assumed of me when I consider some of the things that I say. But let me make myself clear. I'm not a promoter of sin. And if something is sin, I am not a promoter of it, uh, utterly. I just, I'm not. It doesn't mean I don't participate in sin, but I don't promote it and I don't excuse it. What sin is, sin is. But there's two things to understand about that statement. First, we have to come to an agreement about what can actually and properly be called sin. We're going to use a passage in a minute uh, that will show that that's up to debate these days. And people say, oh, that's relative. It's not. And there's a reason why. And then perhaps more importantly, while I don't appreciate or relish or rejoice in sin, I refuse. I just absolutely refuse to judge anyone else for their failure to refrain from it. That's not my job. I don't believe it's my job. My job is to try to teach. My job is to try to love all people and, and help them see the only solution to sin, and that is Christ Jesus. So, uh, also, there's a nasty rumor floating around from Christians, no less, online that I am a consumer of large quantities of alcohol. Alcoholic is being said. Uh, listen, say what you want. You say I'm an alcoholic, a molester, a, a liar, an adulterer, a thief, a gay, a meth user, whatever you want. Uh, I will never offer an explanation of anything I do to any of you. Why? Because you, like our LDS detractors, of yesteryear are gonna believe what you want. You will believe, no matter what I say, I could tell you I drink a six pack only a day, or I could say I don't drink hardly at all, I drink hardly at all, it doesn't matter. It does not matter to you. You will believe and also perpetuate what you wanna believe. So I can just wish you Godspeed and we'll let him handle all that in the end. We have a question offline that somebody posted it's from A.S., uh, and it's Sean. Has your view of ethics concerning committed, sexually active, same-sex relationships changed? Um, first of all, I really resent this question. I resent it at the core of my soul because, of, first of all, because of the intent of why someone would ask that. Uh, is it to build up believers or is it to divide? Is it to cause people to dislike me or to like me? Um, is it to trap or trip me up or to encourage? Second, the topic, listen, biblically speaking, is to me a non, non, non-event. 
The topic is a non-event, biblically speaking. Why? What did Jesus say about marriage? Jesus said, the children of this world marry and are given in marriage. That's what he said. And then he also said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. You take those two into your hand, marriage is of this world and my kingdom is not of this world, and you put them together, and again, it has no purpose in the Christian dialogue. It doesn't matter. Again, is it to divide or is it to finger point? Is it to say, let's build mountains out of molehills of things of this earth? It's, it just really incenses me. And finally, and, and I'm just going to be straight with you, in the biblical sense, I think it's impossible for same-gender people to be married. This is why marriage occurs in God's eyes at consummation of a man and a woman. Consummation. It's not when someone says something at a, at a ceremony. It's at consummation. That's marriage. Uh, when the male and female become one, there is a physiological impossibility for same sexes, no matter how they want to try, to become one in a biblical sense. They can think they're becoming one, but you have to have a male and a female to become one for there to be a marriage. Therefore shall the two become one. And, and unless that happens, there's no marriage. Who cares if someone's standing up and saying, I now pronounce you by the state of this thing that you're... That is not marriage in the biblical sense. No one can tell me otherwise. And so, when any one of us finally want to go and focus on a certain segment of society's sin, what are we doing? When are we going to get over this? The solution for all sin, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual, whether it's gossiping or lying or adultery or or whatever it is, the solution is Christ Jesus. It's our faith in Him. And when we start deciding we're going to focus on this sin or that, we're just making such a huge and embarrassing mistake. So I resent the question, and I hope you won't ask it anymore. And with that, how about we check from the Word? And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder one of the four beasts saying come and see and I saw and behold a white horse all right we've been working through the books of the New Testament to present passages that support subjective approach to Christianity we're in first John there's some hefty passages here and so just bear with me as I read them it is the Word of God see what you think first John 2 5 6 but whoso keepeth his word in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. Here is how we know we are in him. It's the love of God perfected. He that says he abides in him ought to himself also walk even as he walked. Here John says that we the individual can know that we are in God. We the individual. No one else can say they're in God or not. We can know if we're in God or not. And it is if the love of God is in us, perfected in us. 1 John 2, 9-10, He that saith he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness even until now. He that loves his brother abides in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. 
it's really tough to love someone when you think that they are full of sin and you have the right to judge them over that. It's really tough. Uh, so the thing is, we walk around doing all the finger pointing. It's the antithesis. And I just want to point that one out. How about 1 John 2, 26, 27? He says, These things I have written unto you concerning him that seduce you, but the anointing which you have received of him abideth in you, and you need not that any man teach you. John says, And you need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is true and is no lie, and even as it has taught you, you shall abide in him. You know what that's saying? It's saying that we don't need each other to be teaching, that we have the Holy Spirit within us. This transcends all this stuff that we have built up. Uh, this is in harmony with a, a passage that was written in Isaiah 54, 13, but it's quoted better in Hebrews 8, 10 through 11. This is what it says. You're familiar with it from this program. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. Now remember, all who believe are house of Israel adopted in according to Paul and Romans. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people, and they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the, great, from the, least to the greatest. You know what that's saying? It's saying that once this whole thing has been fulfilled and God is moving forward and Christ has had victory, that everyone doesn't need to run around and say, you need to learn this and you need to learn that. Let me be your teacher. It's you will know the Lord from inside. And that's how you are going to be guided. It's a very subjective, individual experience that Christians should be having. Not with their pastors sticking in between them and God or anything else or board of elders or bishops or, or reverence. It's simply you and God by Christ Jesus, the Holy Spirit leading you, and we leave everybody alone. First John 3.11 says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. That's agape love. You know what that is? Unconditional love. Unconditional Un. All right. Fulfills the law, not doctrine, love. Not practice, not systematic religion, not theology, love. Again, 1 John 3, 4, 20. We know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. He that loves not his brethren abides in death. Why do you think John said that? God is love. We're going to live with God. We have to be or learn to love. And I know there's grace in helping us overcome, and I know we'll fail. That's where the grace comes in, but it's all about this love. How many commandments have you been told you have to keep over the pulpit? How many are there? Uh, have men and women broken them down and forced them upon you? Take a look and listen to this. 1 John 3, 23, 24. You ready? And this is his commandment. Okay? He summarizes it. That we should believe on the name of the Son of Jesus Christ and love one another as he gave commandment. And he that keepeth his commandments dwells in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abides in us by the Spirit which he has given us. Two commandments. Two commandments. You should believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you should love. That, those are the Christian commandments. There's a lot more listed, 1,050, I think, in the New Testament. But those are the only two that really are summarized up right there. Do you believe in Jesus? 
And then are you allowing the Spirit to move you to love? Some longer ones, I'll be quick. 1 John 4, 1 through 6, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know we the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. Now, I'm going to stop there for a second. We pick on the Mormons, and we say, yeah, you're not this, and you're that. And I know how screwed up the religion can be, but it says every spirit that confesses that Jesus is come in the flesh is of God. Do they believe he came in the flesh? They do. You know, I'm not preaching ecumenism. I think we should call each other on the things that are strange. But I mean, when are we going to give each other a little bit of a break? It says it is of God when someone says Jesus came in the flesh. Onward. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, wherein you should have heard that it should come, even now already is in the world, the spirit of Antichrist. It was John saying, that, this guy's here. Well, I think it was Nero, by the way. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak of the world, the world hears them. We are of God, and we know God hears us. He that is not of God hears not us. Hereby we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. First John 4, 7, 12, beloved, let us love one another for God is, for, the, for love is of God, sorry. And every one that loveth is born of God and knows God. He that loveth not knoweth not God. For God is love. It is manifest the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwells in us and his love is perfected in us. I mean, why are we asking questions about gays and, and same sex and, and this sin and that sin and can you do this? and can't? I mean, it's right there. Let's love each other. The Holy Spirit will correct people and move them to change and do the things God wants them to. We don't need to police anymore. 1 John 4, 13, Hereby you know that we dwell in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And I'm sorry there's a lot in there, but there's three more long ones, and let me do them. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwells in him and he in God. That's interesting, that Jesus is the Son of God. You notice that John doesn't say, whosoever confess that Jesus is God himself. It says, whoever confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwells in him and he in God. There's a lot of people who will confess that Jesus is the Son of God. We pick on them, but they do. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear has torment. He that loveth is not made perfect, excuse me, he that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God who he has not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God loves his brother also. Who's our brother? Well, that question was asked of Jesus. Remember what he said? Well, actually, it was who is our neighbor? 
That is the same thing as the brotherhood of man. Do you love your brother? Do you love him? That's how you know that you're in God and God is in you. Not do you seek to hurt them, ostracize, separate, point fingers. Do you love them? There it is. 1 John 5, 1-5, Whosoever believeth that Jesus Christ is born of God, and everyone that loveth him that begat loveth also him that is begotten of him. But this we know, that we love the children of God, for we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. What are they? Faith and love, remember? For whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. See, that's why faith is the commandment. It's amazing. Who is he that overcomes the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? Two more quick ones. For if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, that he has testified of his Son. He that believeth on the Son of God has the witness in himself. Right there. It's in us. It's subjective. It's there. We experience it. We don't need anyone else to tell us it's there or it's not there. It's in himself. He that believeth not God has made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And finally, 1 John 5, 13, These things I have written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. A lot of verses here reiterating the same things. Love the Son of God. Believe. Faith. Love your brother. You can know all of that is there in 1 John. And that is all talking about us ourselves. He also said, you don't need anyone to tell you. You don't need anyone to teach you. You know yourself. That's the message. All right, before we go to a continuation of last week's message, I challenge you guys, if you're interested, www.campuschurch.tv and in the archives, tune into the message from last week's Milk, dated December 6th. In it, we cover Acts 3, 19 through to the end of the chapter. It's heavy, but if you sit down and listen and challenge it, make sure you challenge it. Take notes. Look at the passages. Listen to what's said. I challenge you to do it. It might re uh, cause some rethought. All right. Let me apologize for the length of this message. We're going to continue on and finalize. Last week we pointed out in the Old Testament amidst hundreds of references that talk about God in the singular. Okay? Singular, singular, singular. Hundreds and hundreds of references. There are four. One, two, three, four instances only where God is described or speaks of himself in a plural pronoun. Genesis 1.26 and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Genesis 3:22. God said, behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. At the building of the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11:7, God said, go to, let us go down and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. And Isaiah 6, 8, where God says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Those are the four times. We asked who God was speaking to or about when he says, let us, we, or will. Who is the us, the we, the our? Now, the LDS used these passages as proof texts to support the teaching of a preexistence of Jesus and, and angels and of man. Um, but in Christianity, there are four theories 
of how to explain these four passages in the entire Old Testament that you have plural usage. The first theory claims that God was counseling with himself. Uh, he was deliberating in his own mind, and that is what was being recorded. The theory is based on passages like Ephesians 1.11, where it's said that God works, quote, all things after the counsel of his own will. And so the thinking is that these four passages have him reflecting in his mind and saying sort of like, now what shall we do? What shall we do today, you know? And that's how that first theory is explained. Unfortunately, the Hebrew grammar does not allow for this theory because the Hebrew language indicates that God is speaking to somebody besides himself in those four passages, okay? The second theory is called, the, uh, for the plural pronouns, is called the majestic plural theory. Most scholars, even a great deal of Trinitarians, use this as the case for these four passages. Majestic plural language is typically used by royalty. Uh, not exclusively in the Bible, but sometimes. Um, if you read Daniel's statement to Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel says, we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. That's in Daniel 2.36. Well, when Daniel said that, he was the only one speaking. And he was the only one who was going to do the interpreting, too. So when he says, we will tell the interpretation, that's called majestic plural. We will do it. It's, it's like royalty, right? Uh, when King uh, Artaxerxes wrote in a letter, he said to Ezra, the letter which you sent unto us has been plainly read before me. But according to Ezra 4.11, the letter was sent to Artaxerxes alone. That's another example of this majestic plurality. Um, so this view, while kind of satisfying, uh, it doesn't seem very credible as a reason why those four passages speak in the plural re relative to God. I say this because why would God use singular pronouns of himself in hundreds of places in the Bible, right, yet choose four places to use the plural pronoun in a majestic plural sense? Why, of all those things, suddenly he starts speaking in the plural king's uh, king-like English. It would seem that the reverse would be true, that if he was a plural, that he would be speaking in a plurality of himself throughout the Old Testament, and there might be four exceptions where he uses a singular. But instead, it's the reverse. In other words, these few instances where plural pronouns are used seem to suggest that there's a special reason why they are used. And, 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 uh, and, and so we'll get to that. So this is one of the problems I have with the Trinity and the doctrine of the Trinity. I think if the teaching was true, then God would constantly be using plural pronouns throughout the Old Testament to describe himself. We would see it all over the place instead of just four. What was that noise? It was horrible. The third theory explains these passages by saying that although not present physically in the flesh at this time, God was speaking prophetically of Jesus. He was talking about what Jesus would be and what he would do. Um, and I'm just going to keep on, uh, I'm going to move forward because I'm not going to spend a lot of time. There's too much uh, for that right now. So, but just remember this. 
John called the pre-existence, Jesus in the pre-existence, the Word. He said, in the beginning, I know you know this, but stay with me. He said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. He doesn't stop there. He says, and the Word was God. Okay? The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory and the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The same word that existed at the creation of the worlds was the word that became flesh, Jesus Christ. Listen, John identifies the word as being God himself. And the word was God, not some other God or some other person. And the word was God. Even in our world, our words are kind of expressions of our person. They are formed us, they're used us against us in a court of law. We make we use them in vows. We express ourselves in writing. They're our words. It it doesn't seem like God's words can be separated from him any more than our words can be separated from us. But again, remember, John did not stop with saying and the word was just with God. He said that the word itself was in fact God himself. We don't read it that way. We always say that the, the word was like the son of God, but it was God himself. And the word was Yahweh. You get that? I would strongly suggest that Jesus existed at the creation in his deity, but not in any semblance at all of what he was in human flesh. Uh, now, I went through and I took seven commenta Bible commentators and I, said, and I looked at these four passages, and I said, how do they explain Genesis 1.26, and God said, let us make man in our image. One said it was God talking to himself. Hmm, let us make man in our image. Four said it's an example of the Trinity. Two of them made no comment at all as to what it meant. Genesis 3, pass, uh, 3.22, God said, behold, the man has become as one of us. Six made comments on the passage, but who God was speaking to there. I mean, these are Bible commentators who didn't even step out and say, this is what he was talking about. They didn't know. At the, at the building of the Tower of Babel, when God said, let us go down and confound their language, four commented, two did not talk about that part of the verse where he said, let us go down. And two said, it's proof of the Trinity. And then the Isaiah 6, 8, where God says, who shall I send and who will go for us? Three made comments. One said it was the majestic plural, who will go for us, and one said it was the Trinity. The majority of these verses, the majority of these Bible commentators do not comment even themselves with an opinion of what these plural pronouns mean. And yet today, every Joe who's trying to support the Trinity goes to that and says, look, it's been talked about since the beginning. If the man Jesus was not physically present at the creation and God was not speaking to himself in some prophetic foreknowledge of him and if God was not deliberating in his own mind, let's see, what shall we do? And if God was not speaking of himself with the majestic plural, who was God speaking to? Contrary to the interpretation of Trinitarians, we know that this first passage in Genesis 1:26, and God said, let us make man in our image, that it cannot mean there was anyone besides God who created. Stay with me. Yahweh himself said, he said this in Isaiah 44, 24, 
Listen, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, that makes all things, okay? That stretches forth the heavens alone, that spreads abroad the earth by myself. That's what he says, okay? Malachi argued, have we not all one father and have not one God who created us? That's Malachi 2.10. So it's very, very clear that there is only one creator, and that creator is Yahweh. How did he create? By saying, by his word, by speaking things. But nevertheless, it was him. Admittedly and truthfully, Jesus is said in Scripture to have created the worlds. We know that. But he did so not as the Son of God, but as Yahweh through words before the Incarnation. This does not deny, however, that the words, the worlds were created with God incarnate in mind. We know from John 1.3, all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1.6, speaking of Jesus, for by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. So we have to say that the personification of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus in the flesh, he was the creator, but what was he? He was the word of God, incarnate, that created all things. When it says God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, at verse 26 of Genesis, note the singularity of the passage. Man was created according to one image. God created man in his own image, not in their own image, in his own image. In the image of God created he, him. So I would suggest that, the, that this first passage of plural pronouns that God was speaking to angels. I think that this is God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. The use of plural pronouns, us and our, must be referring to someone other than God because the verb used in connection with God is singular. The verb in connection with God is singular. So we know that he was referring to someone other than God. If God was speaking to himself in a plural form, the pronouns would also need to be singular to modify the verb. Because the pronouns are in plural in form, God was truly speaking to someone else. The very fact that God uses singular pronouns when speaking of himself in a thousand cases causes us to question why he, was, why he would use plural pronouns in this passage and the other three that are to follow. Okay, so uh, let me go through the other passage. Um, in Job 38, 4, and 7, we are told that angels were present at the creation. So it's quite possible that God was speaking to them. He addressed the angels in Scripture in a very courteous manner, acknowledging that they had an image that was after him as well, that God created man in his own image, and that was an image that was shared by the angels. Now, two objections pop up when we talk about this. First, how could angels be in the image or likeness of God, some people say? And the second, how could angels help create, or how could angels help God create man? Let me address these two things. 
How could angels be in the image or likeness of God? It seems best to see the image in which man was created to be one of moral and spiritual and intellectual and emotional qualities rather than any physical qualities or similarities. God, of course, and angels both possess all the attributes that men have. So there's no reason to, to, to question were angels created in his image. Sometimes we view angels like androids, like they have no... They have no will of their own, and they, they are emotionless, and they can't think for themselves. But that's an unbiblical view. Uh, Peter said angels are interested in the activities in the salvation of man, and he says, using the Greek, that they creep down and try to look into what this thing is that man is about. We see from this verse that angels do have a will of their own in that they desire to look into men and find out what is going on with them. Uh, we don't read that God commanded them to do this. It just says they did that. I would suggest that this indicates that angels have an emotional spectrum and intellectual independence. They have spiritual qualities and that they worship God. They have moral qualities and that they choose to stay pure and, and, and give their allegiance to God or not when we look at Satan, who is a fallen angel. The second objective to this is how could angels help God create man? I'll wrap it up with this. Listen to this. It's, it's very interesting. The other two verses I am certain are talking about angels. It doesn't seem that angels participated, listen, in the creation of man in any way, but they did participate in some way in the making of man. Huh? Is there a difference in scripture? The word translated make in Hebrew, Genesis 1:26, is asa. The word, the Hebrew word for create is bara. Asa and bara. Okay? Make asa create bara. Two different Hebrew words. Angels don't have the power to create anything, but they might have shared in the making of man with God from the dust of the ground. Vines, it's a great resource uh, on the Greek, contrasts and the Hebrew, these two Hebrew words, and says first, in Genesis 1, 26, 27, asa must mean creation from nothing since it is used as a synonym for bara. The text reads, let us make Asa, man in our own image, after our likeness, so God created bara, man, in his own image. Similarly, in Genesis 2.4, it says, these are the generations uh, of the heavens and of the earth when they were created, bara, in the day that the Lord God made Asa, the heavens and the earth. Can you see that there's two parts in this? When that there were the generations when the heavens were created and the day that the Lord God made two different Hebrew words. So there seems to be two parts to the construction of what was going on. Finally, in Genesis 5, it also equates the two. In the day God created, bara, man, in the likeness of God made, asa, he, him. So he says that God is creating and he's making. All right? And so... We can't really overly define the meaning of asa to suggest that it means creation from something because only context determines how you're going to use that. But it can mean either, depending on the situation. And so creating and making, listen closely to Genesis 2, 3, 4, and I'll try to wrap it up. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because that in it he had rested from all his works which God created Barah, and made. 
So they, they use he created and made here, all right? I would suggest, and then if you finish that, sorry, bring that back up. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth that were with, that were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. So in that passage alone, it shows that there is a creative process and that there's a making process when it comes to the creation of the earth, the heavens, and man, all right? I would suggest that Barah is created from nothing, that that is only God's deal, that he takes and he creates, all right? But the making is out of something, and that might be what the angels did, that the angels took the dust of the ground and created Adam on God's behalf. God created the dust and everything in it, he does the creation they made. Same way when the, 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 the uh, body of Adam was made, when God breathed into Adam, that was created. It, he wasn't made a man. He was then given life. That only could be given to God, right? But the angels were responsible for doing some of the making. Now, we might understand this better when we consider um, uh, uh, Jesus when he would send his apostles out and even though Jesus said to them that they should go out and do things uh, like go out and make disciples they would go and make but it was the Holy Spirit that created the disciples you see the difference so we can see that we can have a participation in the making of something with God but we don't have the uh, any participation in the creating of it and I believe that that's exactly what God is talking about in these Genesis passages with uh, himself and the angelic activity surrounding uh, the creation. Uh, let me just go to the last one and we'll open up the phone lines. 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. The final scripture, which God uses the plural pronoun in connection with himself is Isaiah 6, 8, where God says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Now I suggest he's talking to angels, all right? The grammar of this verse is, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? First person common singular, and who will go for us? First person common plural. Listen, the singular verb cannot have a plural pronoun as its antecedent. And so again, God must be addressing someone else in this statement. All right? Not himself. Not majestic plural. Not thinking about himself, not a part of him, that's his words. It's something outside of himself that he's saying this to. And who else exists then, because this is, uh, then the angels that he's talking to. Unless you go with the LDS view that he's talking to uh, pre-mortal uh, human beings, all right? So whatever the situation, we know again that it was God who was doing the sending. He said, who shall I send and who will go for us? When we look at the context of the rest of the chapter, there's a lot of angelic activity going on here. So it's not strange to think that the Lord is addressing angels. What is strange is the fact that God would ask angels for a plan of action. Uh, to, what, how shall we go and take the uh, rebels at the Tower of Babel? Does God ask for anyone's advice? Even though it doesn't seem like God needs advice, it's evident he sometimes does ask for advice. In fact, there's a detailed account in 1 Kings 9, uh, 1 Kings 22, 19 through 23. In it, Micaiah, the prophet, told Ahab and Jehoshaphat that he saw the Lord sitting on his thrones 
throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right and left side. This is clearly an assembly of angels. The purpose for this meeting was God was discussing a plan of action to bring about Ahab's death. This is in 1 Kings 22, 19 through 23. Verse 20 has God, the Lord, pose a question to the angelic host. Who shall persuade Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead, is the question. And there seems to have been some kind of debate going on because it says, and one said on this matter, and another said on that matter. So there is, God says, who, who's, who am I going to send? What are we going to do? And there's this debate on how to, what to do. Finally, an angel came up with a, with a way to persuade Ahab, which God agreed to. And verse 21 tells us this plan was that he would become a lying spirit in the mouth of the prophets. And in verse 22, the Lord Yahweh gives him permission to do this and says, thou shalt persuade him and prevail also, go forth and do so. And so if the Lord wants input of his angels before executing a plan, that's his prerogative. All we know is that God does on some occasions and for whatever reasons, consult with his angels and involve them on these missions. And so, which to me is even more proof that God has been speaking to them in these four passages. Although it's not beyond the realm of possibility, the first three theories that we discussed don't carry enough biblical weight. Uh, not enough gra grammatical support by any means. When considering the Hebrew grammar be besides these, in these verses, angels are the best candidate for the identity of those included in the us and our plural pronoun statements in the Old Testament. And if this is the case, we ought to rethink applying them as evidence of three uncreated, co-equal, co-eternal personages that make up the one true Godhead of creedal Trinitarianism. All right, open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413. Uh, Let's take a one second look at this spot. We're going to come back to Cedric in Draper, Utah. All right, we're back. We're going to try Cedric on line one. Cedric the Entertainer, you're on Heart of the Matter. Cedric? Hold on, Cedric. Cedric? Cedric? What? Cedric, turn down your computer. Oh, it's still playing. I can't believe there's a delay on that computer. Cedric? Cedric. More volume. Yeah. Uh, hello? Hello, you're on the air. Cedric, you got to turn down hello? the computer. Hello? Turn off your computer. That's a delay. Hello? Hey, is your computer off? Hello? Cedric, turn off your damned computer. 
Your phone, my phone's, my phone's gone. My phone's good. Cedric, we really want to talk to you, but we got to go if you can't. Hello? I know he's got to turn his computer off to hear the phone. Can you, can you go on the line and go and tell him? Yeah. Oh. Tell him, Wendy. We are getting more professional as the years go on. Are you telling our... Uh, all right, let's try it again. And ladies, will you please inform our callers that they need... <laughs> all right, Cedric. Hello? Can you hear me? Cedric? All right. We're going to go to Dawn in Alabama. Let's see if we can have a better luck with that. Dawn in Alabama. Dawn. 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 Again. Cedric? I get paid the big bucks. Okay, I'm on. Can you hear me? Can you hear me, Cedric? Let's try Don online too. He's back. Don, can you hear me? Don, I think we're having a phone malfunction. Don, can you hear me? Don. Hello. Can you hear me? Sean. Can you hear me? I don't think the phone's working. Hello? Yeah. Uh, tell the operators, go on and just tell everybody to call next week. Their phones are, are Hello? Off. Go ahead. Operators, pick up lines. Okay. Uh, while they're trying to fix that, let's go to a quick thing. Uh, this is from Jim B. I served as the first counsel in the bishopric to a very close friend. I started to question while in the bishopric, and it didn't take long for my eyes to open. Now my friend and I have discussions about the church once in a while. He claims to be open, but he says he would love to be sure that the church isn't true and that he didn't have to do all the work and keep all the laws and ordinances. When it comes down to it, he really does not want to hear what I have to tell him. He was just asking, and here's his question, what's wrong with doing what I'm doing and do I think he'll be saved? What do I tell him other than things like it's okay to follow the devil's instructions to cover yourself in the temple and all this other stuff? How do you answer that question? What's wrong with me doing all the things I do as a Latter-day Saint? And is it going to harm my salvation? I wrote him back and this is what I said. I would say this to your bishop friend. Religion is religion is religion. If religion could save a man, then God would have probably stopped at a religion he established with the nation of Israel. But uh, it couldn't do the job because we are sinful. So he sent his son to do the job, and that son said a couple of things that are really important. So I would ask your bishop friend this. So friend, have you been born again? Have you been born from above? You're asking about all the activities you do as a Latter-day Saint, that's, aside, that's beside the point. Have you been born from above of the Spirit regenerated?
The second thing Jesus said, and he said it to the Pharisees, was if you don't believe that I am, you will die in your sins. So friend, bishop friend, do you believe that Jesus is the I am from your regenerated heart of the Holy Spirit? The third thing I would ask him is, would be, do you think all the things that you're doing in your church and all the activities that you're practicing and the rites you're doing are going to help please God and assist in your salvation? If you say no, I'd say, have at it. Do whatever you want. Waste your time. Do whatever you want. I mean, not a waste of time. You're helping with the kids and stuff. Fine, do it. If you don't think it's affecting your salvation, and you know your salvation is through Christ Jesus alone, it's not going to hurt. But if you do think it somehow enhances your standing, your, sal your salvific standing before God, if you actually believe that from doing what you're doing because you've been assigned it, etc., then I would challenge you to read the words of Paul, and I would challenge you to read the words of James. James and Paul both made it clear that if a person seeks to be justified before God by the deeds of the law, they have to do it perfectly. And so if, if you are doing everything and you're doing it to be justified before God, you've got to do it perfectly. Why? Because the law comes as a whole. The law does not come in parts. You're not a keeper of the law when you don't commit adultery and don't commit murder, but you do steal or you do covet your neighbor's wife. You're not keeping the law, okay? You're not keeping the law if you obey, according to James, the whole thing, your whole life, every bit of it, and you fail in one point. If you fail in one point, you are a breaker of the law, and there will be no justification for you. So that is how I would approach, it, approach uh, that, uh, Bishop, uh, Brother Jim. All right, uh, from Cade from Australia, he says, watch many of your YouTube and uh, your unique testimony. Want to encourage you. We have many LDS door knockers. And uh, I just wanted to say, Cade, thanks for watching. Keep tuning in. We also have Caitlin who is writing and says, the reason I'm reaching out to you is for some advice. My family's in a situation that my, many people might not come across. My dad led me out of the LDS church when I was 16, though uh, that is not so uncommon, uh, but my father believes that he is a prophet and that he found uh, this revelation in first or second Nephi. I don't know. I know that God is great and he can do anything, but my father is I also diagnosed with colon cancer about two years ago. I feel very convicted for blindly following my dad for years and I don't talk to him very often. I guess you could say I keep him at arm's length. Uh, I don't want to give up on him. I know God can work on his heart. I hate to admit, but I almost feel sometimes like it's useless. And she goes on and talks about how she just feels like she's between a rock and a hard place. And so I, I wrote her back. And, and here's the thing. Converting somebody over is not our job. It's the job of the Holy Spirit. And often within your own family, it's not the job of the parents or the siblings Sometimes there's just too much emotion going on there for that to happen. Even Jesus said a prophet has no honor in his own country. And Jesus' own brothers, didn't stepbrothers or whoever they were, didn't believe uh, that he was who he was until after he died and ascended. So they said he was mad. So you're not going to have much often. You're not going to have a lot of leeway in bringing people to a relationship with Christ within your own family. However, if your family respects you, 
and really loves you. Uh, my family doesn't respect me. They love me, but they don't respect me. And so I've not been successful in bringing anybody out of Mormonism in my own uh, house. They just don't, they think I'm too crazy. Uh, but I do trust that God will use other means to bring them out. And I think I'm starting to see some of that uh, begin to happen. So long story short, trust in God, pray for your dad, love your dad. God will bring him to where he needs to be through one way or another. And I don't think you need to stress and feel guilty and all that stuff about that. You just trust in the Lord to work out these things, and he certainly will. Do we want to try again, or are all the callers gone? Everybody has abandoned us. Okay, uh, well, we're going to wrap her up. I think I'm out of stuff, and I don't want to beleaguer, belabor the point anymore. Join us next week as we continue on talking more about the Mormon Christian debate. I had to get this stuff about the plurality of gods out of the way. I know it was a lot, but we'll continue on with more engaging stuff next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride, going nowhere I am an existential cowboy on the wind And I won't be coming out, I'm going This man's awake a storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know. And I can feel the light filled monkeys start 